right, well, we're in a new series this week on the book of Esther. Here at The Journey, we love to preach through books of the Bible. Uh, we believe that God's Word is really the only thing of value, certainly the only thing that is worth us gathering around and centering our time around as we uh, get together as a church. And so uh, by default, we just want to preach through books of the Bible as much as we can. We believe that helps us to kind of avoid, uh, you know, pastor bias and just preaching our favorite texts and our favorite things or the easier things when you just kind of open the Word and go, okay, we're going to go uh, from here to here. We, it forces us to deal with more difficult things and uh, lets God kind of um, drive the ship and, and determine the passage. And so uh, we do some topical things. In fact, we just finished a, a series on gender and sexuality. We spent about nine weeks talking about that. And so if you want to catch up with that, you can find that on our website. But today we're jumping back into a book of the Bible and we'll spend our summer in this incredible book of Esther. Now, Esther is a unique book, right? In lots of ways. It's a unique story, but it is a unique book, and even just as it compares to other books of the Bible, you're like, man, I've read the Bible, a lot of it's unique, it's pretty weird. Yeah, that's true, but this one stands over and above in a lot of ways. It's far different than any other book of the Bible. First of all, it's one of only two books that are named after a woman, and I can't get into a ton of that, but it speaks to the way that Christianity and God's posture toward um, women is, is over and above and stands out as the only of the world religions that, that really dignifies and, and speaks redemptively of God's posture toward women. And so, again, we'll talk a little bit about that next week, but, but even that in of itself, the name of the book is not insignificant when it's named after the main character, Esther. But the book is, is perhaps even more um, peculiar in that it does not ever use God's name. Okay? This is God's book, right? Like, we know that. It's God's book. It's God's word. I just said that. That's why we read it. And yet, his name is not mentioned at all in the book of Esther. It's not referenced. It's not, it's not even, like, implied. Like, he seems to be absent from the story. And, and then, furthermore, the, the characters in the story aren't, like, good, righteous, devoted Jewish people. Like, they're not heroes that we're going to hold up and, and follow their example. And for these, for these reasons, this book has been, like, kind of ignored and kind of stayed away from by most of the church for most of history. We, just, we don't really know what to do with it, if we're honest, as Christians. Uh, really, for like the first five centuries of Christianity, nobody wrote a commentary on the book of Esther. Many of our the famous uh, preachers and teachers of, that we're familiar with uh, never preached a sermon out of the book of Esther. They just kind of stayed away from it. One famous, the famous reformer was like, I don't like the book. I'd rather it not even be in the Bible. And now, even in, in today's age where we do have some studies and commentaries, not a ton, but there are some people that have dove in and studied the book and wrote about the book, but even many of them would say, hey, we don't necessarily recommend you preaching through this uh, at your church. So here we are. We're going to preach through it, right? We're going to lean into 2 Timothy 3 that says all of Scripture is good for us, right? It is God-breathed. It is profitable for teaching, preaching, reproof. We're going to, we're going to claim that promise and, and believe that it is indeed true about the book of Esther, and we're going to dive in. So um, as we kind of get started, um, I must admit that as I, I picked this book a few months ago and I told the team, hey, we're going to preach through that, and it'll be our summer book, and and, uh, and that all sounded great. I was excited about it. But then as I got into like studying it, trying to break down and, and you know, figure out how we're going to preach this, I was like, oh, I think I know why they were saying you shouldn't do this. This is really difficult. Like it's really, it's challenging to preach Christ-centered like sermons in a book where God's name's not even mentioned, let alone Christ. Like there, there's not a lot of gospel content. You really have to dig deep. But, I, but here's, here's what's encouraged me. After I kind of stayed in it for a long time, like I was behind, like I, I had to... I had to go to the woods and just kind of be like, all right, Lord, you got to help me with this. We're going to have to change course altogether. But I, but I really wanted to preach the book. And, and finally, the richness of the book just began to overflow, and I'm really excited. And in fact, it's brought encouragement to my heart, especially in this season of, I've got to be honest, I've been discouraged about the church in general, not just, not the journey. You guys are great, actually. We have been a good year. I look forward to reporting to you guys in a few weeks about uh, member stuff. But, but just in general, like, uh, where the culture's going, and some of the issues of the church, and then some of the issues that the church itself is having, and the Southern Baptist Convention conversations, and these, the, the Me Too and Church Too, and, and then, you know, fallen leaders after fallen leader, and I just kind of got discouraged and thinking, man, if this is the direction of the, like, if this is the people that are claiming to be a, a part of, you know, Jesus' team, like, 
that's really discouraging to me, and, and I've not exactly known how to do that. It seems like we're moving in a, like, certainly, uh, you know, from a legislative standpoint, are aggressively moving toward a secular, uh, you know, mindset where there's been some really concerning laws passed, and you guys know about all of this stuff, and it was just kind of getting to me, right? And this book, I think, is going to be timely in that, because what we find is the story of, though God doesn't seem to be present, in fact, he's not mentioned in this book. And the people of God in the story are very much assimilated and secularized in the culture that they're living in. And then we see God's people are threatened even and their very existence seems to be on a timer and they're going to be wiped out. Yet in the midst of that, we see a God who is sovereignly in control and quietly ruling in the background moving in and out through the, the circumstances and the people that are, that are there to accomplish his purposes. And that brings me hope in the midst of our day and our world and the directions that we're heading to know, okay, God is not losing control. This is, things not spun out of God's hands, right? Like God is still on the throne, still in control, and that has very real implications for you and I and how we posture ourselves in today's world. So that, that's kind of the hope of, uh, or kind of the, the underlying theme in a nutshell of this book, but I think we're going to find uh, just a ton of lessons and a ton of richness um, to dwell on through this book. But here's what we got to remember. This book is not instructive, right? We're not going to go into this book looking for direct lessons from its characters on how to live life, Right? This, this is very much a narrative. It's a story about God's work in the midst of darkness and even in the midst of lack of devotion from his people, right? When it seems as though he's absent and absent in the world, you know, the powers of the world are going to kind of move in. God is still in control. And so, but this story is just truly epic, right? It, it is an epic narrative that uh, many books have, have been written about and, and movies even trying to recreate the 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 story in a compelling way, and, and they oftentimes fail to do that and stay true to the Scripture or present it in a you know, non-corny way, but yet it shouldn't be lost on us, the nature of this book. It is a story. It's a really, really good story. It has drama. It has suspense. It has scandal, and it has a lot of comedy, and, and if we kind of, so we got to know all that, because if we stiffen up too much as we get, start to read this, right, if we're very much in quiet time mode, and Lord, you know, then we're going to miss some of this, right? We're going to miss some of just the the, the narrative beauty of this story, because it's what it is. It's a story. So we need to know that um, that, first and foremost, it, it's like God's not caught off guard by the way the writer wrote this book. And in fact, there's much for us to learn in, in leaning into that very um, thing in itself. So as, as always, on your app under this weekend, uh, if you go, there's some recommended resources uh, for you to kind of dig deeper, and one of which is the overview video for the book of Esther from the Bible Project. I would encourage you to listen to that this week and, and perhaps revisit it as we study that throughout um, our time together. So as we get into it, I want you to let yourself see the story in your mind, right? This is a very descriptive book. It, it, the opening lines literally read much like we would open a, a fairy tale or like once upon a time-like narrative that, that starts this thing out. So that's kind of going to be the, the, the way I want you to see the the, the passages that we read here. But before we get into that, we need just a brief history lesson of what's going on in God's redemptive work in history. And so just briefly, you, you, you probably know the story of, of Exodus, God's promise to Abraham, and then his people being caught up in Egypt, and then God rescuing them out of Egypt, bringing them into the promised land. And there's, there's many rich stories about that. We're familiar with that for the most part. And then King David establishes God's kingdom. There's a time of peace, and it's beautiful, and, and God is, is there, and, and his people are flourishing in the season of the promised land. But what happens, God warned them over and over and over again, if you don't follow my commands, if you don't uh, do these things, then you're going to end up being conquered. You're going to end up back in exile, back without a land, back without a home. And we see throughout the Old Testament that, that indeed that is exactly what God's people do. They fail to adhere to the way of life that God has laid out before them and it's and it begins really the significant 
unraveling with King Solomon, marrying foreign women, and letting his heart being drawn away from his true God into their pagan worship. And we see the kingdom be divided and ultimately conquered by the the great powers of Assyria and Babylon. And so God's people are carried out of their ancient city of Jerusalem where God dwelled with them and their their country where they would come and worship. And they're carried into exile by Babylon. and, And they spend many years there. And that's where we get some of the stories like Daniel and his friends um, the lion's den and, and all of those things that come from that season of exile whenever God's people are there in a different culture and, and they have to decide, will they obey King Nebuchadnezzar or what God has said? And we get some incredible rich stories from that. But eventually, Babylon gets conquered by an even greater empire, which is Persia, right? They're going to overtake Babylon, which is in control of God's people, Jerusalem. And whenever that happens, King Cyrus, king of Persia, is actually a pretty from what you know, history tells us, a pretty good king, and he actually doesn't want people to be held under compulsion. He doesn't want people to be there captively, and so he actually gives this decree, hey, y'all can go back home. I'm still the ruler. You're going to be a part of the kingdom of Persia. You don't have to stay here. You can go back to your home. Rebuild your temple. Rebuild your city. That's okay. And so we see that in Ezra and Nehemiah. That's the story of God's people going back to Jerusalem, but what happens is they don't all go. Many of them stay where they were, and some even go further away from God's kingdom, as we'll look at in a couple weeks, uh, to pursue a, a promised life of flourishing, and they, they head into this uh, incredible, prominent city of Susa, which is where our story is set today. So we have some of God's people aren't really following God, aren't concerned about being back in God's presence. They're not in exile anymore. They're not forced to be there, and yet they're not where God has them. And this is where we find ourselves in this story. And, and the story's going to center on a king named Ahasuerus, which is more commonly known as Xerxes. You guys heard of Xerxes? Right? This is, you need to know, the Bible is real, historic, like this is historical narrative. This is not just happening in a vacuum, some make-believe thing. Like, no, this is actual, documented, historical times in which this story is taking place. And so uh, it's going to center on the king named Xerxes, his uh, prideful number two named Haman, and then couple of obscure nobody Jews named Mordecai and Esther. And we're going to see a lot of drama unfold. But that's kind of the, the trailer. That's kind of the overview as God's people are going to be threatened and we're not sure what's going to happen and how's God going to bring them out of redemption. And that's what sets up the whole story. And now we're going to, I want to zoom in. And I want you to, I want you to imagine that this is, a, this is a cinematographer writing, like setting up this story. And you kind of had all that scrolling on a screen before you, you know, like, you know, this is set in this time and all this happened before. And then it begins to zoom in and set the context. And you see this grand, expansive kingdom and it's zooming in on this incredible, over-the-top palace with this scene happening. So let's, let's read through this, make some notes as we go, and then we'll see how God wants us to apply it ourselves. So back in Esther chapter 1, if, you're, if you have your Bibles, uh, crack them back open, open up the app. However, I want you to see this with me. It says, now in the days of Ahasuerus, we're going to call him Xerxes. You all good with that? Okay, Harassus, or, or, man, Ahasuerus is his Persian name. Xerxes is his Greek name um, and what he's more commonly known by. So um, in the days, and, and that's very much like once upon a time, like in this season of time, this is what happened. The Xerxes who reigned from India to Ethiopia. I think we got a map here. I want you to see the expanse of his kingdom is really going to go from um, what we would, would know today as all the way down to, from like Sudan, like south of Egypt there, all, all the way over to India or, you know, what was, you know, kind of Pakistan today, and then all the way back over to Greece. And really, this is most of the known world at this time. Like, this guy rules most of, like, the world. Like, the the known world, like, there's not a whole lot left that he hasn't conquered with the exception of Greece, which we'll get to in just a bit. But this is this is this king. It, it's over a million. It's like a million square miles or more. It's about the same as as the United States as far as geographic um, land mass goes. And it's an incredible. I think 127 provinces and just an incredible expanse of territory that this man has conquered. He is um, the most powerful man in the world to date here. And we're going to see uh, that that's exactly what the author wants us to know first and foremost as we zoom in on this story. So this is in the days of that guy, King Xerxes, ruling over all that land. Um, in those days when King Xerxes sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, that's, that's the, that's, that citadel is, is going to be used to refer to the capital of the Persian Empire, and then also that, that's also a name for like a fortified palace or a Dodge Durango derivative in our today, right? No, it's, it's a fortified palace. It's, a, it's a, the capital city of 
uh, Persia in Susa, and he's sitting on his throne. And, and the imagery there, the, the historical documents would say that the throne itself, the palace itself, was built up on a hill, like high and above the rest of the land, where, where he would sit on his throne high and lifted up and looking down upon his subjects. And this is the scene in which we're zooming in. And it's the third year of his reign. He's a young king, right? And he didn't conquer any of this. He inherited it, okay? This is a spoiled Rich, royal boy, okay? His, his mom was the daughter of Cyrus, the one who conquered Babylon and advanced much of the Persian Empire. His dad was uh, Darius, the, the, the previous ruler. And, and, and so this is uh, very much a guy who comes from a double bloodline of royalty and has never wanted for a thing in his life. You know the type? Just spoiled and frustrating as all get out. And he is Rich. The, the historical documents would say not only is he rich, not only is he wealthy, but he's also a very good-looking man, right? It says he's tall, dark, and handsome. He is a spectacle standing over and above physically, certainly financially, anybody else that's ever stood here and, and very much thought of himself and was thought of as a god. If you don't know, I can't I certainly can't recommend it, but some of you have seen it and you're thinking about it. This is the movie 300 is based on this, right? The freak Xerxes that they make carry around on a throne and speaks with a real deep voice, that's who they're portraying here. And they actually do a decent job of portraying who he is. Again, I can't recommend that movie. There's nudity in it, and, and I don't endorse that. But the story is a familiar one because it is very much this day and age. It's this time. That's that guy that you're, that you're seeing portrayed in that movie. He's from a real historical king named Xerxes, and this is him. All right, and so here he is, young guy, third year of his reign, and he's got all of these officials. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and governors of the princes were before him. While he showed, listen to this, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. This guy is flexing his muscle. He's throwing this huge banquet which we'll see later, he's, he's, he's doing so because he's anxious. So he wants to, he wants to uh, launch a bid to invade Greece. And so most historians think that this is, this, is the, this is him pitching that to his officials, bringing them in, throwing this big feast, showing them that he's able, that he's a powerful king. He's able to, he's able to uh, make good on his promises to his people, and he's, he's really flexing his wealth so that he can launch this bid into Greece and, and conquer them. And, and that's what leads to the story that is portrayed in the movie 300, um, which we know doesn't go well for this guy. But we'll get to that. So th- this is what, what's going on. He's throwing this incredible banquet, and it lasts for like six months. It's crazy, right? For 180 days. That's unbelievable. This is a party um, that is really nonstop for six months. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small. So now he's going to invite the commoners in. It's not just his governors and officials and war uh, leaders. It, he's going to invite everybody in, right? You and I get, get the invite into this. I want you to continue picturing this. And we're all invited out. This 180-day fe- like celebration, this festival, is, is going to be capped off with a seven-day feast. And he invites everybody. This is crazy. This is crazy. It's very much like in the movies when you get the invite to come to the king's castle. Or king's castle. I don't know what a pastor was. When the days were completed, the, ga- the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And listen to this. This is going to start zooming in on what the house looks like. Now listen, this is, this is their equivalent of like Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, MTV Cribs, Whatever other show, keeping up with Kardashian, like where we get a glimpse in and look through the window of how the the rich people, the celebrities of our day live. Like we're fascinated by that, right? We want to see the the amounts of cars. We want to see the the incredible houses that they that they have bought for themselves, and it's usually more than one, right? And so he's going to start zooming in then to paint this picture of how incredible this palace is, and we're going to need to kind of. Uh, use our imaginations and know that contextually this is mind-blowing stuff that nobody else is going to have. It's not going to sound that exciting, whites and purples, but for them in this day, this is an incredible place. So verse 6, there were white cotton curtains. This is in the, out, like the outer courtyard, right? right? This, is, this is like he's throwing a garden party, and this is what's, what's happening here. There's white 
cotton curtains. That's nobody's have like that's not commonplace in houses in this day, right? The, the commoner doesn't have white cotton curtains just hanging on every window, but he's got them all over this place. And violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and, and purple to silver rods and marble pillars. Okay, we just gotta stop right there. Like just all of that, the fact that there's purple there in this day and age is like mind-blowing. The commoner that's coming in here has probably never even seen purple. Okay, purple in the ancient uh, world is, is symbolic of riches. You, you might remember in the book of Acts, whenever Lydia uh, comes to faith, it says she's a dealer of fine purple goods, right? Like she is a high-end fashion designer because she's, she's designing clothes. She's dealing clothes for high-end people, right? That's Lydia in this day. So for him to have now curtains and, and tassels and ropes and all of this made from purple, like you, you got to imagine the common person is coming in and they're like, they're like gasping. They don't, like this is see, literally seeing new colors for them. They, they, they'd never laid eyes on something of that kind of quality and that riches. They're, 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 they're just trying to take it in. They're, they're whispering to one another. Did you see that? Can you believe that? You ever been to a house like that? You get in the car later and all you do is talk about how incredible it was on the way home, right? And you tell your friends about it. Oh my gosh, you'll never believe that house, right? You're just in awe of it. This is what, this is what these people are going to be experiencing here. Listen, so he's got white cotton, he's got purple linens, and they're hung, what, with, with, with what kind of curtain rods does this joker use? Plastic, maybe some aluminum? No, he's got silver laying around, and he makes curtain rods out of it. All right, maybe y'all roll differently than I do. I'm impressed. Marble pillars. Some actually suspect that, that uh, these, some of these pillars were actually from Solomon's temple when Nebuchadnezzar and his crew conquered and, and tore down Jerusalem, that they actually had the marble pillars from Solomon's temple carried back with them to, to make their own. And so, so this could even be from the temple that, that Solomon built for, for God, Right? So marble pillars, and listen, what are they going to set on? They got enough chairs? They bringing out like folding chairs, like metal folding chairs, maybe some lawn chairs out of the bags for everybody to sit on? No, what do they got? They got couches. Not just any couches, right? Not just big, luxurious sectionals. They got couches made from what? Gold and silver. I don't even know why you'd do that. It's not comfortable, but I guess if you can... Why not, right? Couches of gold and silver. And that's not even, like, it's just going to keep getting better. What are they walking on? What's all this, what, what, what kind of flooring they do? They do some nice hardwood, right? Some real high-end hardwood. Maybe, uh, maybe some, you know, really nice tile. Maybe it's heated underneath, you know, what, whatever. No, this, this, I don't even understand most of this. On a mosaic pavement, a porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Like, this is like pick your jaw up off the floor, kind of, holy geez, why'd they do that? This is amazing. I don't want to get it dirty kind of place. It's amazing. It's unlike anything that anybody's ever seen. It's certainly unlike the, anything these common folks have ever walked into. So now they're getting to just see all this, behold all this, where the, how, the, how the king lives, right? But now it's not just, it's not just a tour of the pastel. Why do I want to call it a pastel? We don't know. It's not just a tour of the castle. It's like come in and dine. And as they come in, they're all getting cups. And are they red solo cups? No, what kind of cups are they? Y'all seeing this? Served in golden vessels. They had gold left over after they made the couches. So they thought, you know what? Let's make everybody a gold cup. Don't make them all the same either. Make, them, make a bunch of varieties. It's incredible. You imagine getting handed a gold cup? That's heavy, first of all. I don't even know if I want to drink out of a gold cup. I'd be like, I'm going to set that out and look at it. You got anything plastic? Like, I don't want to carry that around all day. The gold vessel to serve, right? Vessels of different kinds. And then what are they getting in it? What kind, what kind of drink? They splurge for like some Kool-Aid. They make some sweet tea. Maybe they went out and got some wine. What kind is it? Like wine from the box. Kind of this royal wine. What does that mean? I don't know, but it's better than what you and I drink. I promise. Royal wine to go in your golden cup. Like, I, 
I just got to sit down and take a breath if I'm there. Like, I don't even know what to do. I, I certainly don't fit in at this. You know, y'all ever feel awkward? Like, man, I am a hillbilly deluxe. Like, this is, like, I'm from the hills. Like, I, I grew up on a cattle farm. Like, my shoes were probably dirty. Like, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't fit in well here. I, I don't know how to act. Like, uh, me and my family show, show up in our bibbed overalls, and, like, we, we're not fitting in here in the king's crew, but we got our gold cups with our royal wine. It was lavished according to the bounty of the king. It's not, like he even, it's not like he's even overextending himself to do this. This is just like, this is leftovers for him. Like he's got plenty. Verse 8, and drinking was according to this edict. So here's the drinking rule. And in this day, they had drinking rules. And it usually was anytime the king drank, you had to drink. It's just a weird rule. Frat guys love that, but it's a weird rule. But he says, you know what? Today... For this feast, there's no rule. That's what he says. The, the rule is, there's no rule. There's no compulsion. So drink as much as you want. Drink as little as you want. Enjoy yourself. Right? You, you just gave all kinds of common folk an open bar in the palace with your white cotton curtains and your purple. Like, that's all getting ruined. I don't know if you know that. Like, if you've seen how open bars turn out, like, that's all going badly. And it's not just for a night. This is going to go on for seven days. Hey, I'm done with my cup. Here's some more. Middle of verse 8. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Where are the women? They're on the other side of the castle with Queen Vashti. We'll get into that next week. So th- this, is, this is crazy. There's two parties going on. It's an incredible scene. This man is a big, big, big deal. And he wants everybody to know it. He wants everybody to know it. That's the, that's the point of Xerxes. And here's what we need to, here, here, here's what this has to do with us. Not only are we infatuated with stories like this, and we're infatuated with celebrity culture and how they live and their houses and things like that. The truth is, we're all just like Xerxes. We just don't have the same cash flow, Right? Like the only difference between us and Xerxes is we don't have the cash to live that way. But we're all just as consumed with people knowing that we are fill in the blank, that we have status, right? That's why he's doing all this. It literally says, verse 4, showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. That's what all this is about. So everybody knows how great Xerxes is. Now listen, you and I don't have gold couches, I would assume, but... You think about the way we live our life, the things we strive after, the things that we view as important. We're so drawn to our, and we're so worried about our appearances. We're so drawn to celebrity status that most of us have conceded that we're not going to reach that level, right? But we'll go through our own egocentric struggle of trying to present the image that we want the rest of the world to see, right? We're consumed with how others view us. We'll go to great lengths to make sure that people know what we did. Right? You'd look at social media. Why do people post what they post on Facebook and Instagram? And I know it's not you, right? I'm talking about somebody else, obviously. But why do you want people to see the, the way your house looked or the way your meal looked or the way you looked? You're, you're, you're putting this, like you're putting the, the narrative out that you want people to believe about you, right? You're putting... The image out for the world to see so that they will... View. And then what do you do? Like a few minutes after you put it out there, you open, open back up your phone, see if anybody's commented, see if anybody's liked, right? We have the same posture in all of us. We just don't have the same means as King Xerxes. We crave recognition and credit even even if it we're like we're probably more subversive and and kind of conspicuous about it, right? That we even want to get noticed for our humility, right? Like we want to be humble, but we want people to notice that we're humble. We just want we want to be well thought of. Like this hit me this morning as I was as I was praying and asking God to move in me and and to make this make some sense and just not be a complete failure. I realized that one of my main motivations. In this, even when I get up here on this stage, what, what my flesh rises up in is I want you to like me. Too uncomfortable for some of you? Like, it's just true, right? 
Like that that's like I want to be seen as admirable, likable, good speaker, good pre- whatever. Right? And I have to submit that to the Lord saying, no, no. Like if if all these people get is the best of Jordan, then that's been a failure today. Like what I want, Jesus, is for you to make much of yourself. But listen, that's my flesh. It rises up in me, and I have to I have to check that before the Lord in this and many other things. And for you, like what does that look like? What what is your life? postured toward? What, what is your life reflecting? What is your energy being spent toward? title of the sermon is, Appearances Aren't What They Seem. And that's because Xerxes is seen as this all-powerful God-man who, who no one could say no to his decrees. We'll see that as the story goes on. He says something, boy, like that, it's law. It's it. If you sit on his throne without permission, you're dead. If you approach him without being beckoned, you are dead. Like this is a man of ultimate authority, and he seems to be all-powerful, and yet... We'll see, not only can he not control his own wife, his kingdom is going to start declining by the, you know, by the time we, we get through this story. And yet there's God contrasted on the other side of this. We started this out talking about how this is a book about how, how God's name's not even mentioned, right? And yet, whose kingdom are we still talking about? Whose kingdom has lasted Whose kingdom is still going strong? We have a God who is content to be behind the scenes, content to to not be overbearing in the story, for everybody to not know who he is, and yet his kingdom is the one that prevails. Appearances are not always what they appear, right? What they seem. And and you know this. You've seen this. You know this about yourself. But I saw this when I was working in the retail world, when I was selling flooring. Somebody would come through, and they uh, would want to get a loan for their flooring, and we'd have to run a credit check. And they would would tell, you know, they'd sit down and tell me how much they made. And I'd be like, oh, that's really impressive, right? They made six figures. I'm like, oh, this guy's clearly. And then they would get rejected for the loan because their credit's so bad. They look nice. They're driving a really nice car. They got a nice new iPhone. Their house is incredible, but they're so overextended that they can't even get a loan for a few thousand dollars to upgrade their flooring. That was in St. Louis. It wasn't any of you guys. Don't don't worry. You guys know people like that. You've seen that be true. The appearance seems to be that, man, they've got it all together, and they're living really large. But when you come down to it, man, they're overextended on credit cards. They're living paycheck to paycheck, and... Things just aren't what they seem. And then you have people on the other side of it who are really eccentric, somewhat weird individuals who we find out late in life, they're actually like millionaires, but nobody knew it because they wore like flannel shirts their whole life, right? There's stories about like this janitor who was really good at picking um, stocks that were going to do well, and he ended up being a millionaire. Nobody knew it because he still dressed like a janitor, right? Or there's there's a secretary who, who acquired billions over the years, and Nobody knows it, and they leave these uh, nest eggs to hospitals and libraries and you know, organizations that are doing well for people. And, and every, all the while, people are going, I had no idea. They didn't appear to be that kind of a powerful celebrity-like individual. We see this played out. Appearances are not always what they seem to be. And this is an incredible example here where Xerxes flexes his muscle, and we, we see it's what we actually have is a cowardly, spoiled little rich boy that wants desperately for people to fear him, to think well of him, to exalt him in his glory. And he goes to these great means to do so. And the Bible warns against this, warns against us following this type of lifestyle. It says in, in Proverbs 16, the Bible says, How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. The highway of the upright turns aside from evil. Whoever guards his way preserves his life. Pride, you know this, right? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide, divide the spoil with the proud. Psalm 49 16 through 20 says, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry what? He'll carry what? Nothing away. His what? His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp yet without understanding, is like, is like the beast that perished. 
So why does God warn us against this pursuit? Why does he say, hey, don't, don't live your life chasing that, that status, that riches and power, like because he wants to take all the fun from us? No. Because he, he doesn't want us to get close to his own glory? No. Why? Because he loves us and he knows that all of that is going to disappoint ultimately, right? Because Solomon talks about it in Ecclesiastes, like it's all vanity. It's like you think you're going to grasp it, but in the end, it's like, you know, it's like you're going to grab a handful of that smoke. Like you, you can reach for it, but you come away with nothing. It's emptiness. And there's always something more. And we see this in Xerxes' life. He's got this whole kingdom. Almost the entire known world is under his rule. And what's he obsessed with? The one thing he doesn't have, Greece. He's obsessed with it. He has to conquer it. I have to have what I don't have. And this is, this is the nature of materialism. This is the nature of life. When you try to find hope in your possessions, in your status, in your gain, it, it's like a chasing of the wind. It, there's vanity there. It's emptiness. It'll never be enough. This man has a hundred million square miles of territory, and yet he goes, man, I got to get Greece. Got to get Greece. And it drives him to spend this incredible amount to, so that everybody knows he's powerful enough to conquer this. And then he sets out on this campaign, which ends up in the Battle of Thermopylae that we see. And, and the famous story of the 300, not about the movie, that's historical. It's an incredible story. And that begins the downfall of this great kingdom of Persia. Here's this guy. He's got... All that we just awed at that was outlined in chapter one. He's got he's got stinking gold cups for everybody that he comes to his house, right? Yet he's obsessed with what he doesn't have. Can can you relate? Like we need to see ourselves in this. We're not just to paint Xerxes in this bad light and go, oh man, that guy's a, a moron. Like you need to see yourself in this. Can you relate? To being obsessed with the next thing, being obsessed with what you don't have, being believing that if you just get this or just get that, then you'll you'll have enough, right? Can anybody relate? Like, it doesn't look the same. We don't have gold couches where we've, we've run out. But, but for all of us, it just gets scaled down to wherever we are. If we just had this car, we just had this spouse, we just had this house, we just had this level of income, we just had this wardrobe, this body type, fill in the blank, and we just chase it and pursue it. And yet, we know as we get it, it doesn't satisfy. Right, listen, our celebrities model for this for us time and time again. And it's sad, but man, it's even sadder when we don't learn from it. When our celebrities reach the pinnacle of right accomplishment and they have millions and billions of dollars, they can't even spend it all, and homes that are jaw-dropping, and yet they end up addicted to drugs or in rehab or just downright depressed. It's not that we should celebrate that. That's a sad reality, but man... It's even sadder when we don't learn from it. Because we think we're different, right? We think, well, I know, I don't need all that, though. I just need this, right? I, I don't need all of what they had. I mean, that was foolish. But if I just had this, then I'd, like, we think we're different, don't we? We tell ourselves that we're different. That if, if we could just get this, then we'd be, ha- we'll, we'll be content then, Lord. Lord, if you'll just get me this level, then I'll be content, right? Anybody else? Y'all with me today? Right? We feel that draw, we feel that, that angst within us, and yet what we know is when we get it, there's still the next thing. This is true, over and over again it's true. So what do we do? What do we do? What do we do if this pursuit is always in vain, it always ends in the same way, which is what Psalm 49 says, in death, right? And you can't take anything with you. Your glory dies with you in that moment. And yeah, maybe some people will remember you for a few years, but ultimately, even Xerxes the Great, y'all are like, yeah, I kind of remember that story, right? And if it hadn't been for the movie a few years ago, we probably wouldn't know it at all. So it's not going to last. Your glory is not going to stay with you. So what do we do? We have to look to a better glory, the glory that we were made for. See, it's not wrong that we're longing for and and are infatuated with this glory in our life. That's not wrong. In fact, it's God-given. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3.18 that that God has placed eternity on the heart of man. Like we are made for and are longing for a glory. But it's not our own. It's sin that turns that desire back toward ourselves. That's what happens in Genesis 3. The, the, The serpent convinces Adam and Eve that 
God is holding out and that what they need is not God's glory, but they need their own. And if they get that, then they'll be equal with God. So the answer is not that we just do better, try harder, to be less vain and focus on others. The answer is that we look to the one who has an unquenchable and pure and holy and undefiled glory. And we, let, and we receive him as our Savior. I want to read uh, a, a passage. I want, I want you to hear. Uh, you've heard about Xerxes' house. I want you to hear about King Jesus' house. Revelation 21. I, w- I want you to just see the imagery that comes from this passage. It says, and, and this is just an image, and, and John is seeing this played out. And he says, the one who spoke to me, he's got this measuring rod of, of gold. So he's even measuring the city with gold, right? And, and he's measuring. This is the, the new Jerusalem, this is where we will live forever. This is our future home, what God is accomplishing for us. And this is how it's described. He says he's measuring the city and its gates. The, city's, the city lies four square. Its length is the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod as 1,200 stadia. And its length and width, that's just big. Just know that, right? Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. But listen to this. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold. Xerxes got couches of gold. Jesus got a whole stinking city of gold. It's like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper. The second was sapphire. The third, it just goes on. And the fourth, emerald. The fifth, onyx. The sixth, carnelian. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, like it's just everything you can think of that is beautiful and exalted in this world. God's already got it. In fact, he's the creator of it, and it's all built into his city, right? The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Like, he's made gates out of pearls. Like, we don't have categories for that. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. That's our King Jesus, the one who is content to stay in the background of Esther. Is he going to use his riches to make sure that everybody knows his glory? No, what's he going to do? Philippians 2 tells us, and it's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Philippians 2 says this, that that this Jesus who lives in this kind of splendor already, this Jesus having this mind among you, Paul says in Philippians, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God and lived in that kind of splendor we just saw in, in Revelation 21, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But instead, what? He emptied himself. See, Xerxes takes all of his great wealth and he turns it inwards and makes sure that everybody knows that he is great. What's Jesus do? Jesus got all this great wealth. All of it at his fingertips. And what's he do? He empties himself. He becomes like us, like you and me, it takes the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Things are not always what they seem. This was a peasant man born in a manger, working a humble job in a humble town of Nazareth, and yet he's the man who, when he speaks, the winds and the waves obey. And when he tells people to get well, they are healed. When he tells people to stop being dead, they rise back up. Whenever he speaks, the whole world has to obey. And, the, and this says, Xerxes is on his throne, high, exalted above all the people. Jesus, therefore God has exalted highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, above Xerxes, above any other king, any other ruler in our day and age, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus, what does he do with his wealth? What does he do with his power? He empties himself and he spends it to make sure everybody knows about the glory of his God the Father. That's what Jesus does with it. He, he, he does the exact opposite of Xerxes. Instead of making sure everybody knows his glory, instead he's going to enter in and serve one another. He's going to serve us. It's incredible that he's coming to serve us so that we may know the glory of the Father. And, and the reason that God warns us against pursuing the kind of life that Xerxes is and that we're tempted to pursue ourselves, he warns us because he knows life is not found there. He loves us, and he says life is found here. Now, it's paradoxical. Jesus told his disciples, you want to have life? What do you got to do? Come lose it. Doesn't make any sense, does it? He says, you want to find your life? 
You want to be fulfilled? You want to have joy? You want to be, you want to have purpose? Come, come lay your life down. You lose it and you'll find it. But if you keep trying to find it yourself, you keep trying to save it, you're going to get to the end and, and see it all slip through your hands like sand and you're going, I, I got nothing. And he says, exactly. But if you'll come and serve me, I'll give you everything. And this is what he says. I want you to see this in Luke 22. His disciples, this is toward the end of his life, right before the passage I read earlier when we broke communion, and there becomes this argument. His disciples are going, hey, Jesus is about to take the throne. Who's going to be the greatest? Like, who's going to sit on his right? Who's going to sit on his left? We, we want to know, Jesus. Who, who's earned the number one spot? Who's your right-hand man? Who's getting the, the chief of staff? We want to know how your cabinet's going to shake out. Tell us, Jesus. And this is what Jesus says. A, disp- a dispute rose among them. To which of them would be regarded as the greatest? And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Not so in Jesus' kingdom. Rather, he says, the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? Jesus wants you to think about this. Who's the greater? Who has more prestige and status in our day? The one who reclines at the table has servants waiting on him, right? He says, but I am among you as the one who serves. He says, I'm not come into the world to be served, but to serve, to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus is not just telling us what to do. He's modeling for us. He's living the life that we can never live, dying the death that we deserve to die. He is the gospel. He is making a way. He's saying all of the way that seems right in a man is going to lead you to death. I know you think you need that riches. I know you think you need that salary. You need that house. You need that status. He says it won't satisfy you. Instead, go this way. Go this way. And it's going to seem counterintuitive and people are going to look at you funny and they're not going to know why you're living your life that way and why you're adopting, why you're fostering, why you're giving your time to this, why you sold your car and drove a beater and gave your money to somebody else and why you're doing all of these things and, and people are not going to know, but you're going to say, because Jesus, what does that have to do with it? Jesus is enough and Jesus showed me the way. And the way is not through possessions. It's not through titles. It's through humbling myself and giving my life, not to a life of prominence, but a life of significance as I give myself away. Jesus says this, Luke 22. He says to his disciples, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He says, listen, what you think you want is an earthly kingdom. It won't satisfy. But there's one coming. Jesus says, the one I'm bringing, it's even better. So when you lay down your life here, and your expectations, your hopes here, you're, you're clinging on to what the Bible calls treasures in heaven, which is not just some weird way of like, well, I mean, I guess I'll like gold, but man, I'm going to miss my iPhone. No, no, no. It's like treasures beyond your wildest dream. When, whenever the, the gates are made of a single pearl, you can imagine that the place that we're headed is one that we'll never want for anything. We're in the king's palace. and His guests are treated even more richly than Xerxes. Jesus displayed this in the wedding banquet of John 2, right? They're, they're having this party, and they run out of wine. Jesus says, all right, go get those barrels of water. And, and people are like, hey, this is, this is, this is even better. Like most of the time people let them drink, you know, the good stuff. And after they're, you know, half drunk, then they bring out the, the cheap stuff so they won't notice. And you're bringing out the better stuff. Jesus is saying, yes, and the best is yet to come. That's what I want you to know. You think that you need all this stuff. You think that life will be satisfied in eating and drinking and having possessions. He says, no, no, the best is yet to come. I'm bringing the best wine. I'm bringing the best kingdom. And come, make much of me, Jesus says. Point your life toward making my name glorious, Jesus says, and you will find Life and its fullest. It's the hope of the gospel. We don't, if we're not careful, we're going to keep chasing the, the life of Xerxes, and we will end up at a totally different scale, but just as empty-handed when we exit this life. We can't take any of it with us. But if we will loosen our hands, lay it all down, and instead run toward King Jesus, there'll be a day whenever we'll receive our reward. He'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my kingdom. Have a seat at my table. The wine never runs out. The good food never stops coming. It's going to be awesome. Jesus is a better king. Even though we don't always see him here, we don't always know what he's doing, we can trust his kingdom has prevailed 
Year after year, decade after decade, King Jesus is still being worshipped, and not just by 127 provinces like Xerxes. There are now billions of people from thousands of different countries that worship the name of Jesus. And Revelation 7 says that there will be a day when there will be people from every tribe and tongue and nation at the throne of Jesus worshiping, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Let's begin that now. Begin that now. Here's what we do as we close. It's not about doing better, trying harder to just become a better person. It's about realizing that Jesus is the better person, that he is the king. And some of you are weary with the weight of that pursuit. You're weary with trying to get what you, it's unattainable. Jesus says, you who are weary, you're tired, you're burdened, wondering whether life even has a purpose, come to me, I'll give you rest. Come to me. What he means by that is it seems counterintuitive, but when we actually abdicate the throne of our little miniature kingdoms and we lay down our life and worship the true king, it's the most freeing thing we could ever experience. Common sense is going to say, yeah, but you need to get this first, get this a little bit more, and then you'll start serving Jesus. No, no, lay it all down, let it all go. Psalm 96, in short, I I would encourage you to read it later. I'm not going to read it all today, but here's what it says. Point your gaze, point your awe at the only one who truly can attain, can absorb it, can can hold it, the only one who is not going to let us down, and, and it is the Lord our God. Sing to his name, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous work among the people. For great is the Lord, great they too be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are his sanctuary. Verse 8, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering, come into his courts, and worship in splendor and holiness. That's what I want us to do as we close today. It's not about trying harder, doing better. It's just, it's simply we have to look at Jesus, and when we see him as exalted and high and lifted up, our lives will, be, will decrease automatically, and the little gods, the little things we've been pursuing will seem just a little bit less because Jesus has become a whole lot more in our lives. That's the hope of the gospel. That's what sets us free from sin. And that's what he's inviting us to. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful for you as our good king. Would you come and bring your good kingdom here in the midst of us today? There are people carrying burdens, entangled in sin, pursuing a life that, Lord, they know has led them to more and more heartache, not to more and more joy. I pray you would set us free. Would you paint a picture of your kingdom here for us to come and partake of this morning? A king that doesn't falsely just try to wow us with being impressed, but a king who came and emptied himself so that we may have life. I pray, Lord, that those who don't know you as Savior would find that life today. You would give them faith to come and respond. I pray for the rest of us that we would not lose, that we, we would be in awe of you, King Jesus. We would be in awe of the one who is the king above all kings, the name above all names, seated on the throne that rules over all the galaxies that we can even comprehend. May we not leave here unimpressed with you. As we sing, Lord, come and, and dwell in this place. Fall, Holy Spirit, that's our prayer. It's in Jesus' name, amen.